The cost of youth soccer, the industry, has just gotten completely out of control. Why are kids on certain teams and how they found themselves there? And is it indeed the best situation for them to develop? There really seems to be a lack of inclusion. I'd love to see a club just be honest and right. say that. <laughs> right, um, right. But you know all that BS? Forget that. We're not saying it. Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just right. play to win. Welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast. I'm Bo Dewar, and yes, it has been a while. I've done basically one of these in the last 11 months, and it was just me and Dan Loney goofing around. It's safe to say this has not been my top priority. I've got you know, freelancing for The Guardian, for Soccer America, um, working for NBC's Olympics coverage now. Got a lot of projects going on, and one that is ready to drop as they say these days. And that is my new book, which is called Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup, A Historical and Cultural Reality Check. I should clarify, I do mean the U.S. men's soccer team. Uh, I think it's safe to say the U.S. men's cricket team will also never win the World Cup. U.S. rugby, I might actually give a better shot than U.S. soccer, simply because, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but U.S. rugby is pretty good at the sevens version of the game. They are a legitimate medal contender. They've been winning a lot of medals in international competition. So if they could somehow duplicate that success in the full-fledged 15s, yeah, it might be 1%. might be 2%. That's still higher of a chance than I would give U.S. men's soccer. And I know that sounds like a cynical thing to write. It's not intended that way. The idea here is just to sort of manage expectations. And I know it'll be, I know I'll be accused of letting people off the hook, of letting U.S. soccer off the hook, of letting players off the hook, and coaches, and so forth. I just felt that it was important to put things in context of our history and our culture and see that no, you don't just win soccer championships by having 325 million people in a large economy. And no, you can't just change one thing. That's one of the chapters is we're too reliant on the quick fix. We seem to think that if we fix one thing, it could be promotion relegation. It could be uh, getting rid of pay to play. It could be putting up street soccer and so forth. You know, all these things or most of these things may be legitimate goals. You know, they might do a world of good for U.S. soccer. But is it going to put U.S. soccer into the top four countries in the world? No. Is it going to give U.S. men's soccer more than a one in 100 chance of winning any given World Cup? No, it's not. And so it's really a case of saying, okay, look, let's see what we can do to make things better and try to get there rather than just sort of all yelling at each other when we don't win a World Cup or, or when we lose to Canada. And granted, the book is not called Why the U.S. Men Can't Win in Toronto. They should be able to win in Toronto. They should be able to win in Cuba. So that's certainly a reasonable expectation to have. Now, I thought before I read the intro, I wanted to go back over a basic bio for me because I haven't done this in about 10 years. I think it's important to let people know where I'm coming from with this, the, you know, the perspective that I have. 
the perspective that I have is, first of all, I'm old. Well, not as old as some people, but uh, the age, a round number is coming up very, very quickly. And I am a child of the 70s, and that meant, like a lot of people my age, my first exposure came through a wonderful program called Soccer Made in Germany. This was back in the days when you only had about six things on TV. You had the three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Fox did not exist yet. Uh, you may have a couple of local independent channels. But anyway, the de facto fourth network was PBS, public broadcasting, your local public TV station. And it had a lot of quality programming, and it, it was fairly well-rated because, again, there just weren't that many opportunities to have anything else on TV. If you wanted to see something a little bit erudite or cultural, that was where you went. So Soccer Man Germany was a neat fit on there, and it was just an hour-long highlight show of the Bundesliga. And we did have the NASL. I mean, the Atlanta had an NASL team through part of my childhood, and I would read about them. Uh, never made it to a game. I have no memories of watching the NASL. Not really sure why. Maybe the broadcast always conflicted with college football and pro football, and that's where, or baseball. And that was all fairly big in our household. Uh, but soccer made in Germany, we we could make time for that. And my dad was not a huge soccer fan, but he was a biochemist who went traveled around the world for conventions. He was familiar with the, everything that was going on. I mean, he, he knew the basics of soccer. He understood promotion and relegation. And, you know, the, I was introduced to that at the same time I was introduced to soccer. And then I had a couple of other little childhood things. There's this neat table soccer game, still exists, called Sabudio. And you, what you do is you take this piece of felt in the shape of a field. It's maybe oh, three feet long by two feet wide, maybe a little longer. And so you stretch it out, put it over a board. And then you have all these players with rounded bottoms, you know, just little figurines. And so you flick them with your wrist and you try to hit them at the ball and they shoot and score or in my case uh, they go sailing across the room uh, or they move a millimeter i never got it down it's really difficult to play the neat thing about it was you could get players in all these different uniforms so you, you'd have a catalog say hey wow aston villa has really cool uniforms that might be what i want to get or you know saint etienne france or you know juventus so you'd look at all these cool uniforms, and I probably ordered one or two of them, and it was it was neat. I mean, you could at least, if you couldn't play the game, you could at least set it up and have something in your house that looked interesting, that looked soccer-ish. So that was something I did. And also, I learned recreational soccer from American football coaches at the YMCA who did their best. I'm not sure they really understood the finer points of the game. They at least had us kicking with something other than our toe. So that was a plus. Of course, we were playing 11 aside at age six, which you would never do today. And there weren't many other opportunities for me to cover soccer. So I was in love with the game, but it was a long distance relationship at best. And then in 1982, I realized to my horror that I was going to be at summer camp 
through virtually the entirety of the World Cup. So what I did was I had my mom clip out the scores because they did run the scores in the paper. You know, clip out the scores, send them to me by mail because, you know, no other communication existed. So I'd get the scores and I had a little notebook where I would plug in the standings so I could follow uh, who was winning each group and so forth. That's what I did to follow soccer in 1982. I uh, went to college in the late 80s. I went to Duke and Duke had just won the men's soccer championship. They started the women's soccer team while I was there. Among my other 300 duties at the college paper, I did write a little bit about soccer. And I had opportunities to write and I had opportunities to read about soccer because I worked in the library. We got Soccer America. We got uh, The Guardian. We got The Independent. We got we got some um, some other foreign language papers. And I'd sit there and flip through and try to figure out what was going on. That's what you did to follow soccer in those days. So when you talk about when you talk with people who've been around as long as I have, it's really difficult to say that we've made anything other than significant progress. And sure, new media has helped. Because before then, I would sit there with a shortwave radio. I was doing this as late as maybe 1997. With a shortwave radio trying to get the BBC on the last day of the uh, Premier League season to see what was going on. You know, Was Coventry City going to escape again? So then finally ESPN started showing the occasional Premier League game. And that's what you had to watch. And, st and for a few years, I would watch any soccer game that I possibly could. You know, today we take it for granted that you can watch anything from so many different leagues. You know, you've got, you can watch England, Germany's on thoughts. It's about to move over to ESPN. Uh, you've got Champions League. Uh, you've got e practically every game from Mexico. So much soccer on TV. And so I became, at a couple of the newspapers where I worked, the de facto soccer guy. In 1994, I wrote a couple of columns about the World Cup, which of course was in the US, uh, trying to explain the game to people in Wilmington, North Carolina. And then I covered some college soccer at my next job in Greensboro. Uh, went, came to a wire service, wrote a column that was basically, it was power rankings for MLS teams and a few other little opinion pieces. Went to USA Today at the end of 1999, started writing a column called The Netminder. And I was trying to cover everything. If you look at some of those old columns, it was uh, basically trying to sum up everything in the world of soccer. It was basically what Jason Davis tries to do over 15 hours in the course of a uh, radio broadcasting on Sirius XM. I was trying to do that in about 1,500 words or less. And I was getting indoor soccer. You know, there were two leads at the time. You know, when the women's lead started, I was getting that. I was getting MLS. I was trying to follow any U.S. player who was playing overseas, which was kind of rare in those days. You know, soccer was never my full-time job, but it was a significant part of it. It's what I was best known for outside the newsroom. Inside the newsroom, nobody really realized that I had this soccer audience because no one was really paying attention to that. I left uh, after the 2010 Olympics to concentrate on my family. I would never have been able to be a soccer dad, really, if I had stayed. You know, people who wrote soccer existed in strange spaces in those days. It's, you may not remember now that Grant Wall was not 
originally a soccer writer at Sports Illustrated. He did a lot of college basketball. Uh, Stephen Goff was still writing some college basketball until a few years ago. There were no soccer writer positions unless you went to Soccer America, uh, which had a, a fairly substantial staff in those days. It was publishing weekly. It was wonderful. So that's how I came into soccer. And I've been freelancing ever since. I've written three books on soccer, uh, including you know, Long Range Goals, which is the history of MLS through 2010. Uh, the subtitle, which I regret, is the success story of Major League Soccer. At the time, it seemed like a good idea because Major League Soccer had done what no other league had done, which was that it was in, it had gotten through 15 years uh, without collapsing. And so that's how it came about. And what it means is that I remember some fairly lean times. Uh, it's Paul Kennedy of Soccer America who used to say, if you think soccer is in bad shape now, look back to 1985. And yeah, there was a time when it seemed that the only soccer that was going to be played in the United States was going to be indoor soccer. And I don't mean futsal. I mean the kind of soccer, you know, with hockey-style walls, uh, which is still around. You may have seen that both Landon Donovan and Jermaine Jones played indoor soccer um, professionally last year and actually played on a national team. Landon Donovan got to play Mexico again, uh, which is which is hilarious. So the book goes into the diversity we have. It goes into a lot of the fractious things that we have. It is meticulously well-researched. So this is not just the ranting of an old guy saying to get off my lawn uh, or, you know, you kids don't appreciate how difficult it was in the old days. There's a little bit of that, but there's also just a uh, a rewriting of U.S. soccer history. It's been done a few times. Uh, David Wangerin wrote the definitive U.S. soccer history uh, called uh, "Soccer in a Football," you know, "Soccer in a Football World." It, it's wonderful. Every soccer fan should read that. And there are a few other histories out there. This one is geared specifically to demonstrating how we fell so far behind. So that's where I'm coming from. And so after the little bit musical tag here will be the introduction to the new book published by Roman and Littlefield, available at Roman, that's R-O-W-M-A-N.com, uh, or at Amazon, or any other place that you order books or ebooks online. Uh, the official publication day is November 15th, but I have heard from a friend of mine who says that her copy is already shipped. So, the introduction to my new book. Enjoy! Introduction. It's okay to embrace a lost cause. I'd be perfectly happy to be wrong about this. Maybe this book will inspire some kid somewhere to keep working to win the cup and wave it in my face. Great, but get a move on. I'm getting older. If you're in elementary school now, you might have just enough time to win it all and tell me I'm wrong. Just understand the message of this book. The odds are stacked against you. In 20 years of covering soccer, not just on the field, but behind the scenes, with countless hours of research, ask me about the U.S. soccer bylaws sometime. In conversations with power brokers at all levels, I've seen a lot of progress, but I've also seen obstacles that are still in place. 
and I've heard all the quick fix ideas. If only we hire this particular coach, or if we change our pro leads to look more like Europe's, or if we stress dribbling, no, wait, passing, at the earliest ages, the U.S. men will be the world power everyone says we're supposed to be. That's not going to work, ever. The USA is never going to be Germany, or Spain, or Brazil. Catching up to those countries is like running a marathon in which the finish line keeps getting farther away. We've had plenty of small booms. With the American Soccer League of the 1920s and 30s, the USA was arguably keeping pace with the rest of the world. A notion borne out by the USA's third-place finish, admittedly out of only 13 teams, in the first World Cup in 1930. Forty-five years later, the North American Soccer League seemed to have taken root. That league had little direct impact on the U.S. national team, and it was soon gone. Pro soccer seemed to have been a fad, wrote David Wangren in the definitive U.S. soccer history book, Soccer in a Football World. Continuing the quote, Attending a match had always carried a certain novelty appeal particularly when tickets were cheap and the atmosphere was festive. While the NASL produced a clique of native fans who warmed to the game and even embraced it, the result wasn't nearly enough to fill big league stadiums. The game has at least and at last taken root in the 21st century. Youth soccer, which grew rapidly when the baby boomers signed up their kids for a safe activity, is now a booming business. Major League Soccer has far outlasted the other professional leagues in the USA, but growing from those roots to catch up with the redwoods of Europe and South America has been difficult. This book will argue that it's not going to happen. Maybe we'll get lucky, even luckier than the 2002 US team that caught many players at a career peak and got a few breaks to reach the World Cup quarterfinals. Maybe we'll have one of those mythical golden generations with a Messi and a Maldini born in the USA within five years of each other. If you don't recognize the names Messi and Maldini, please Google them. Yes, that means you're part of the problem, but don't be too hard on yourself. It's not you. It's America. It's not that America isn't a soccer nation. It is. It's just also a football, the NFL NCAA version, nation a basketball nation, a baseball nation, an esports nation, and many other nations. And even within the soccer nation, we're divided. If you think blue-red is a divisive issue at your family dinner table, try talking pro-rel within a soccer community. That's promotion relegation, a system in which the bottom teams in the league are sent to a lower league and the top lower league teams move up. Most countries use it in soccer and other sports. Or try devising a national curriculum that pleases thousands of coaches that have their own way of doing things. No one's saying we shouldn't try. I'm never going to play drones like Neil Peart of Rush, but I still go to the basement and thrash my way around. Lars Ulrich of Metallica is never going to play like Neil Peart, but he plays in front of sold-out crowds that have a tendency of making someone forget about the haters. Instead of putting on airs pretending we're going to be Neil, we should be like Lars. Embrace who we are and build from there. Bill Murray's character in Stripes put it best. We're Americans. 
with a capital A, huh? You know what that means, do you? That means our forefathers were kicked out of every decent country in the world. We are the wretched refuse. We're the underdog. We're mutts. But there's no animal that's more faithful, that's more loyal, more lovable than the mutt. That's who we are. We're not the German soccer machine. We're not the Brazilian Samba masters. In women's soccer, we're the ones with the head start on the rest of the world. The rest of the world keeps getting better, but so does the USA, at least for now. The 2016 Olympic loss wasn't a fluke, and the youth national teams are no longer as dominant as they were. Eventually, some of the issues we'll explore here may affect the women as well. The winning tradition, though, means they'll at least be a contender and often a favorite for the foreseeable future. A word of warning. While we'd love to think of all sports as a respite from the socio-political issues of the day, in other words, we'd love to talk about all kinds of football without reflecting on the ridiculous things your grandparents share on Facebook, we really can't. We're going to see here that anti-elitism, nationalism, populism, and other isms have all played a role in restraining soccer's growth here. The only hope is that postmodernism and globalism pave the way for greater soccerism. We'll get into that right away in Chapter 1. The obvious point here is that Americans play a lot of sports other than soccer, and you'll see plenty of statistics to back that up. But we'll dig a little deeper and talk about American exceptionalism, the concept so controversial that academics can't even agree on what it means. We'll also take a peek at U.S. history to see how we wound up with other sports far ahead of soccer, but the full history will be in Chapter 6. Before that, we need to look at the way the U.S. melting pot makes us look in many directions in Chapter 2. We need to talk about our insecurities about our identities in Chapter 3. And we need to delve into our inability to agree on anything Chapter 4 and the ensuing parade of lawsuits Chapter 5. Can we fix everything? We can try, but because we don't understand what we're up against, we look for quick and easy fixes. Chapter 7. In doing so, we tend to take what should be a fun sport and make it too serious, scaring away many youth players and turning others into robots who are afraid to make the mistakes they need to make if they're going to learn anything. Chapter 8. But the women will keep on winning, right? It's not so simple. The world is catching up which is a good thing if you care about women's rights throughout the world. The less attractive aspect of things is that many problems that hinder men's soccer development are inevitably creeping into the women's side as well. That's Chapter 9, the last before we try to wrap things up with a dose of optimism in the conclusion. This book will be educational and informative. It'll teach a lot of history. But it will also be fun, despite the depressing premise. Gallo's humor is part of being a sports fan, especially in soccer. Some of the worst teams in the world have fans who create beautiful TIFO displays, large, sometimes animated pieces of art in the crowd, and rock the stands with traditional songs. We can embrace being lovable losers like the Chicago Cubs or Torquay United. And maybe, one day, we'll throw off the mantle of eternal futility just as the Boston Red Sox shook up generations of frustration to win multiple World Series. We'll have home field advantage in 2026, at least. Maybe the soccer guys will pull off their own version of the 1980 Miracle on Ice. Or maybe not. 
but that's okay. So I hope that inspired you to go out and buy the book. If you're young enough to have an impact on U.S. soccer down the road, I hope it inspired you to go out and practice for a little while. The book, again, the title is Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup, a historical and cultural reality check available through the publisher Roman and Littlefield at R-O-W-M-A-N.com. It's basically like Roman.com. Uh, or you can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, uh, wherever you prefer to get your books or ebooks. And so tell your friends, uh, tell your enemies, uh, please leave nice reviews uh, on those sites and at Goodreads and everywhere else. And let's have a good discussion about where we really can go, where we really want to go in U.S. soccer, because that's the whole point. I think we can make progress as long as we're not assuming that we need to change one thing and that's going to make everything all right. We just need to be realistic about it, and that's why I wrote a reality check. Thanks so much. I might do another one of these uh, podcasts in um, a week or two, uh, maybe bring in someone to argue with me. Um, I should be making some radio appearances sometime over the next couple of weeks. I'm hoping to set up some book signings. I'm hoping to set up something at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore uh, or just outside there. It'll be sort of like a little guerrilla movement. I will not be speaking at the convention this year. I, I don't think this book really points the finger at anybody. It just takes an honest look at where we are, where we've been, and where we can go. Thanks so much. <laughs>